Welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this episode of our exciting new political podcast, Council SVP Joel Copperud talks with Representative Jake Oshenkloss of Massachusetts. Having worked with Liberty Mutual and a cyber startup, Oshenkloss is very close to insurance and even listens to industry podcasts to let his hair down. He shares his thoughts on debt limit issues, government versus industry role in cyber, housing costs and gun violence, and the surprising amount of bipartisan legislation that is getting done in Congress. Plus, Joel and Council VP Blair Bartlett update us on PBM legislation and more. Joel and Blair, thank you again for joining me. Uh, you just had a great call with Representative Jake Oshenkloss uh, talking about some really current issues, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But before we do, I'd love to hear from you all just what you're focused on this week, any uh, top of mind issues that are popping up for the membership from a political perspective. Yeah, there's a lot going on right now. Um, so Congress is in recess for the next two weeks. They're taking a breather, uh, Easter recess. The weather is great. Uh, it's good to have the sun back. Uh, and, you know, I say take a breather, and in theory, that's usually what happens. But we are actually putting the pedal to the metal on a lot of our issues over these next couple of weeks. Of course, we've got our board meeting, our mid-year board meeting in London uh, in two weeks. And as we are meeting in London, there will be a markup in the Senate Help Committee on PBM legislation. Uh, of course, we care deeply about PBM legislation and have for some time. And this all derives from <clears throat> the directives that we've gotten from our CB board uh, on how to rein in costs for their clients. And of course, that's high costs are directly connected to high costs of prescription drugs, which is co directly connected to the role of PBMs. Uh, we've got our legislation out there that we are hoping or we are proposing legislative language that would really just clarify current law and require PBMs to be as transparent as brokers are uh, when it comes to their compensation schemes and how they make money. Uh, we think that the law passed in 2020 requiring them to do that. It's why we supported that law. Uh, but they have been able to skirt those regulations saying that they are not quote unquote service plan providers as the law details and therefore they are not subject um, to the rules. We, we, we disagree with that. So we're hoping to clarify in whatever Congress puts out um, that they are in fact service plan providers and, or they plan service providers, excuse me, uh, and that they are subject to the, to the transparency rules. Uh, so that markup is happening in HELP. We just saw legislation get passed out of the Senate Commerce Committee separately that would rein in uh, the practice of pr spread pricing provisions or mechanisms that PBMs employ. It would rein in their ability to claw back some of uh, their rebates um, that they use to increase their profits uh, and at, at the behest of, of employer costs and employers. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of momentum to get something done on the PBM issue. The same thing is happening on the House, though the House is not quite as far ahead as the Senate. We know the Energy and Commerce Committee is looking at this. Uh, we're hoping that Ed and Labor look at it as well. Uh, I can report that after hanging out with a bunch of Democratic senators on a retreat a couple of weeks ago, uh, Leader Schumer has directed any Democrat that has a bipartisan bill to work their tail off to get to 60 so that they can get something some bipartisan legislation out of the Senate. Uh, and he directly mentioned PBM reform legislation as a topic that he thinks could achieve that 60 threshold. The, I would say the 
the problem, I guess the one sticking point is the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. And, and with that bill that you just mentioned that addressed spread, spread pricing, it also gave the FTC a little bit more power, which some members, uh, which some senators had issue with. And the, the chair of the FTC right now is, is a little bit more progressive than Republicans and, and centrist Democrats would like to see. So I think if they can maybe figure out a way to move around that, we might be we might be able to, that might get some traction as well in the house. Yeah, that's right. And that's, yeah, it's, it's an issue everyone wants to deal with. Um, but like a lot of things, it's something everyone wants to address, but like, how do we get there? You know? I, I should share that I was at an event with a, uh, with a Democratic leader in the house and raised the issue of PBM reform and all the bipartisan momentum. And maybe it's one of the few things that could reach the finish line with both parties and support. And someone raised, they're like, yeah, everyone supports it until it gets amended with a repeal and replace amendment. <laughs> repeal <the> <laughs> and it was a it was a valid point because that's always the case when when anyone sees something that's going to reach the finish line, they almost inevitably are going to attach something to it that's going to detraw or you know distract from its cause and pull away some votes. I'm hoping that's not the case with with this piece of legislation. But this is all to say for these next couple of weeks, um, we are we're working hard. Uh, to make our case before members of the Senate Health Committee, uh, we've got a lot of meetings this week, um, and we are we're we're hopeful um, that this can reach the finish line because we don't think that should be that controversial. Uh, I understand that the only senator that's clearly carrying the water for the PBMs is Senator Ted Cruz, uh, and if that's the only senator carrying the water for the PBMs, I, I feel pretty good. <laughs> So I thought repeal and replace was finally dead. Is that really, was that a it joke finally, or is that it a it real? It was, it was a joke, but okay. the, the point of the joke was they're gonna attach something, something. to it that's so bombastic, it's gonna kill it. Joel is yeah. yeah. back old jokes because he has nothing new. I'm repeating a joke. <laughs> so <laughs> Congress I, I just only had That was a very, a very valid point. <clears throat> Outside of that, I would just say, you know, we are continuing to monitor what's gonna happen with the debt ceiling. Yeah. That, that date continues to move. Um, we, I talk about that a little bit with Jake uh, in the upcoming uh, recording that we're all going to listen to in a minute. Uh, and from what I understand, there are moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans that are working on a solution, um, knowing full well that their leadership, I mean, Democrats are of the position of we're not going to negotiate on any any price, any spending cuts until we increase the debt ceiling. Then we can talk about spending. Yeah. Republicans are of the position, we're not going to increase the debt ceiling until we talk about spending cuts. So the White House has come out and said, okay, here's our proposal. We're going to raise revenue dramatically. Lots of changes to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Tax the rich. We're going to increase revenue, and that's going to help lower the deficit. Where's your plan? And for their part, Republicans, Blair, correct me if I'm wrong, but they, they're, they're struggling to come up with a plan because they're demanding $4 trillion in spending cuts but they don't want to say where that's going to come from because all the only programs where you can really cut $4 trillion from are politically popular programs. They're the entitlement programs, Medicare, Social Security, and they've all vowed in front of God and everyone during the State of the Union that they're not going to touch that. They're not going to touch defense spending um, unless they go into Ukraine, foreign aid. Um, it's, it gets politically perilous for them to figure out how they're going to come up with the savings. So they're, they haven't proposed a budget and so the White House feels like they're in a strong position of negotiating power, but that's not helping solve the issue of how are we going to, we've got to get the votes to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Um, which I don't like to say often, but you <laughs> are right. Republicans, you know, put themselves in a, in a corner by kind of saying we want to cut 4 trillion, but they didn't, and they haven't figured out how, um, and you never really solve for a problem without knowing, um, how, 
you know, they've kind of figured out the why, but how, how do they get there? And, and to put a number on that um, without, without knowing where you're going to take that money from is, is going to be really difficult because yes, you have to get that from entitlement programs and tax reform. And those, you know, we know from history, those are the hardest things to do and virtually impossible. Um, and to do that with a five vote majority, I just, I don't see how that happens. I do think we'll see maybe some short-term debt limit increases to, to buy them more time. Um, you know, we'll have a lot of starts and stops and it'll be painful. I don't think we'll default on the debt. I think we will come very, very close. Um, but yeah, it'll be, it's going to be a test for, for everyone. And it's interesting as, as we'll hear shortly, um, your Jake mentions, you know, lots of bipartisanship that has happened sort of under the radar in Congress, at least in the last Congress. Um, where a lot of things got passed and sort of looking at what's going to happen between McCarthy and Jeffries and their relationship. Any thoughts on that as as how you might see them work together before we head into this this great interview that you did? I think it's just remarkably consistent with our past two podcasts. And it's what I'm, I would say what I'm consistently hearing from other members, and that's not necessarily true, but we are seeing you know, I had a dinner with Maxine Waters the other night, and the relationship between Maxine Waters and McHenry, I think, is enviable of a lot of committee chairs. They get along very well. They're constantly in touch with each other, even on issues that they don't agree on. It has not it has not spoiled their relationship. Uh, same is true between Leader McCarthy and Leader Jeffries. Sorry, Speaker McCarthy. They are in touch all the time. They're both. I think it speaks to their per, both of their personalities. I've been around McCarthy a lot, and I've been around Jeffries a lot more. Uh, and they're both just very likable, very good, very kind people. And I think that's coming through in their relationship when it comes to managing the House, being clear with each other about what their political hurdles are and what they have to do for their own political purposes. But they text each other on a regular basis. Um, I wouldn't say that they're friends, but they're certainly friendly, and they know what they have to do for the good of the country, and they're stepping up from what I understand. <laughs> and that is that that trickles down. Um, back to the debt ceiling debate, we're seeing members of, I think primarily they're members of the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a lot of the centrists, but they're figuring out solutions to reach their hurdle, knowing full well that they're not going to be able to do that with the far left on board or the far right on board. But if they all stick together, they can get the votes if they can just get the vote to reach the floor. And that would be the challenge um, for McCarthy. But we are seeing a lot of bipartisanship on our own issues. On the PBM issue, we're seeing bipartisanship. There's constant bipartisanship on flood insurance reform. Uh, and our insurance issues in general are not partisan. They are business to business issues. And this is the stuff that never makes the news. And it's unfortunate that the news drives so much of what happens at home and what happens at home really drives what a lot of members up here think and do. But yeah, you're right. Open up the hood. There's actually a lot of good conversations happening between the two parties. I think as a as a former staffer who worked on the Hill a long time, that's probably one of my in my top 10 grievances is that people don't know of the bipartisanship that really does happen um, in the work, you know, that happens between staff of different parties bicamerally, um, you know, between members. And it's because it's, you know, the news, you know, your your kind of big broadcast news has deemed it you know, not interesting enough. Um, it doesn't, you know, there's no um, radioactive feelings, therefore it is not good news. And I think that's frustrating because, you know, people have such a low opinion of Congress and everything is so politicized and it's hard for people to see that things do get done. Um, 
and it's, you know, it, I think it's frustrating from, uh, from, from, for, from us, um, you know, as we're constantly, you know, trying to defend bipartisanship and that it does happen, um, but it's not, it's not covered. Okay, Joel, give us a little bit of an introduction for your um, interview you just did with Representative Jake Oshinkoss. Yeah, uh, so I first met Jake when he was, uh, I think it was before he was sworn in and after his election, uh, or else it was right around then, but it was very, during a perilous time, it was during lockdown, it was on Zoom, um, but I immediately knew this guy is a, this guy's a rising star. He's Harvard educated, he served in the Marines, went to Quantico, worked at Liberty Mutual on cybersecurity policies specifically, which he's really passionate about. Uh, and he's 35 years old and he's now a member of Congress. Talking to him, you just feel uh, his intellect, his energy, his smarts, but the fact that he is so smart on insurance and the value that insurance plays not only in the broader economy, but also when it comes to you know protecting critical infrastructure, and he goes into cybersecurity stuff in here a little bit. Uh, he's he's going places. He's going to be great for the industry. He's going to be great for the country. I wouldn't be shocked to see him climb the ladder if there's an opportunity for him to be governor or senator down the road. He's just so smart and so young. His future is very bright. Um, and I was fortunate to to get to know him so early on. And I had a coffee with him last year. And just to underscore this point, we were talking about insurance issues, and he said that he listened to the CEO of Aon on an insurance podcast. And I was like, really? That's really interesting. He's like, yeah. On the way home from work, sometimes he listens to an insurance podcast that interviews CEO executives as a way to, to relax and kind of check out from politics. Yeah. <laughs> he cannot imagine a better member of Congress on our issues that, that seeks this out on his own time to make himself smarter on the industry. He's incredible. Uh, so he's going to be he's going to be really good. He his district is the fourth district of Massachusetts. It's Joe Kennedy's old seat. But you talked to him about the issues. He is pro business. And not not that you have to be Harvard, you know, Harvard educated to be an effective member of Congress. But, you know, he is he has his own experience of being in public service, but his parents do, his grandparents do. Um, and that's really shown throughout his ability to, to be pragmatic and wanna work with the other side and kind of look at the issues versus looking at the politics and the ideology first. Yeah. Um, so I'm okay that Joel did this interview <laughs> with a the great, Democrat. <laughs> great. great, well, let's give it a listen. Good evening or good afternoon, everybody. This is Joel Copperud, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs here at the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. And I'm here recording our latest iteration of our Government Affairs podcasts. Uh, I'm honored to be joined today by Congressman Jake Oshinkloss, representing the 4th District from Massachusetts. Uh, Jake has been a very good friend of the Council since he's been in Congress. He was first elected in 2020. So this is his third year. And I'm curious to talk to him a little bit about how his experience has evolved over the first three years. Uh, but he has a stellar background and stellar biography. He's been in Washington for a long time. He's 35 years old, uh, one of the younger member of, members of Congress, but really smarter than our issues. His uh, industry experience comes primarily from serving uh, as an executive at Liberty Mutual. Uh, he has served in the military. He was uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, where he was trained from at Quantico, I believe. Um, and has just been so far a very impressive member. He has was on financial services last Congress. I think he's got a new committee assignment um, this Congress, but we are here to talk to Jake and let you guys get a sense on who he is. I've never met a member of Congress who is 
more passionate on insurance issues than Jake. And I was actually with, with him at an event a couple months ago, and he told me that in his free time, he likes to listen to interviews with insurance executives on the radio to help let his hair down, <laughs> which I was like, that's that's incredible. Tell me more about that. <laughs> but Jake, Voice of Insurance podcast. The Voice of Insurance podcast. One of our competitors. Do not lead to I was going to say, it's bad form to recommend another insurance podcast. Yeah, yeah we are... They are yeah, we are. They are one of our competitors, but we're we're brand new and starting. So, Jake, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so, yeah, just my first question. So, this is your third year in Congress. The last year was crazy. Uh, it must have been your like first or second week as a freshman when you lived through an insurrection, and that just tainted the entire Congress. Uh, we don't need to relive that experience. But my question for you <clears throat> is because there's few of you from that freshman class that we're close to. Uh, has the smog lifted a little bit? Do you think that there's more of a bipartisan, more of an opportunity for bipartisanship in this Congress than the last Congress? Uh, how has how how has how has life changed? Despite last Congress starting with an insurrection, which is an inauspicious beginning for bipartisanship, it's worth noting that last Congress passed more significant bipartisan legislation than any Congress in recent memory, looking at significant generational infrastructure investments gun safety legislation, Electoral Count Act reform, investing in semiconductor manufacturing and basic research. Everything I just listed was done, Republican and Democratic votes. With the leadership of Joe Biden and, and Senate and House uh, Democrats, we brought Republicans on along for some very important legislation. Now, not everything was done with Republican votes. We made climate change and clean energy a, a priority, and that was done on partisan lines. But we got a ton done in a bipartisan fashion. And, and now in the 118th, where the Republicans have the control of the House, the onus is really on them to continue that same bipartisan momentum. Kevin McCarthy really has the prerogative right now as Speaker to say, hey, I want to work with Democrats on issues like permitting reform, where you see really strong bipartisan interests to make it easier to build things in this country, particularly, particularly infrastructure and energy. He wants he has the prerogative to want to work with us on debt limit and budget issues, which of course are, are existentially important in the next few months. Uh, and so really waiting and, and hoping that he's going to step up and be a leader that, that this country needs. Yeah, to unpack that a little bit for me. So I was with Hakeem Jeffries uh, last week, and he's I mean, he said that he and McCarthy get along great. They they text when it comes to just managing the house operations. It seems like they've got a, a pretty good relationship that's not really, you know, broadcast on the on the airwaves. You wouldn't think that they talk as often as they do. But it looks like the Republican majority, like McCarthy, has kind of backed himself into a corner on the debt ceiling stuff because they are saying they to raise the debt ceiling. They need to cut. We need to cut spending. I don't know what their number is, but it's significant. But they won't say, "Here's where we want to cut the spending." Yeah, there's a number of, of phenomenon at play here in that question. Number one, Hakeem Jeffries is just a pro, and he's going to work with the his counterparts to do what's right for the country because that's how Hakeem Jeffries operates. And I think we're going to we're seeing in him just a dynamic leader who has the confidence of the Democratic caucus and who is going to be a major power player in Washington for a long time to come. Uh, number two, I think embedded in your question is just the reality that what people see on cable news and, and click through on social media is not emblematic of Washington. It's emblematic of the 10 to 20 percent of members of Congress who are on the fringes who attract a lot of eyeballs and clicks because their antics fuel an outrage as a service model for, for a lot of our media. And unfortunately, that 
distracts from a lot of the work that we're trying to get done here in Congress. Right? I don't work with the performers here. I work with the with the workhorses, uh, and there is potential for us to get big things done as a country. R is and D's coming together, but and here's the third issue. Ultimately, it requires Kevin McCarthy to stand up to his extreme MAGA flank. Um, the Democrats are uh, obviously a diverse, kaleidoscopic party, but we share a lot of common values, first and foremost, that we believe in democracy, okay? The Republican Party right now has an entire wing that's increasingly authoritarian. And if Kevin McCarthy doesn't have the moral courage to stand up to his hard right flank, no amount of text messaging with Hakeem Jeffries is going to save him. He's going to go down in history as a bankrupt leader. But he'll lose the gavel if he does that, right? Not necessarily. I, I think the motion to vacate has been overplayed uh, about its potential to, to unseat him. I'm not saying that it's off the table, of course, and obviously we've seen previous Republican majorities depose their leaders, but um, I think... Uh, I think he still has the prerogative to get a deal done here that preserves his seat and helps the country move forward. Hmm. Time will tell. It sounds like August is probably the deadline we're looking at to to hit. Yeah, I think Treasury has some purposeful ambiguity about that because if you give a hard deadline, I think people start to game around it. And I think Treasury is appropriately saying the best time to have fixed this was a year ago. (laughs) And every minute that you don't fix it, you were really damaging the full faith and credit of the United States, even before default technically happens. I really can't emphasize enough, and I think insurance executives inherently understand this, uh, how catastrophic it would be for the United States to default on its debt. We need to take this off the table as an issue of political brinksmanship. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, shifting gears real quick, let's talk a little bit about some industry-specific issues. Last time I talked to you, you were pretty fired up on cybersecurity mm-hmm. um, threats, not just to the business community at large, but specifically for insurance. Uh, when you think about the insurance issues, what, what keeps you up at night? I, first of all, I see such a positive role for the insurance industry to play in creating a market for cybersecurity products and services. I think... A big challenge that cyber, and I worked in cybersecurity for a couple of years at a startup, big challenge that, that products and services have is that they're selling into a negative. They're selling into this idea of you do everything right uh, in terms of, of protecting yourselves, and it's hard to prove the value of that. And what insurance can do is create a market for products and services for cybersecurity by adjusting premiums based on their risk posture for cyber attacks. And the, the insurance industry over the last five years has done a superb job of that. They have really stepped up to the plate with data-driven underwriting, with a much more sophisticated understanding of especially enterprise cyber risk profiles, and then working with their customers to reduce that that risk and to manage hazards better through the adoption of, of new, new tools and products. So the insurance industry is doing what it does, I think, best and uniquely is creating a market for protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and government has a strong role to play in that in, one, just protocols around um, standards and, and procedures that everyone should follow. I think there's a real rule-setting role for government. And two, through the, the cybersecurity, um, the, the CISA, um, C- Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, that's not the right acronym, but it's something about <laughs> infrastructure cybersecurity at the Department of Homeland Security, uh, just more money, particularly for utilities, for water management plants, yep. for municipalities in general to manage their uh, risk profile. So coming from 
2014-2015 when I was a, a product manager at cybersecurity companies to today, I actually feel really good about the progress this country has made. I know a lot of insurance execs will still say that they feel like they, um, one, there's tremendous, tremendous under-insurance out there for cyber exposure, which I'm sure is true, and two, that there is still not enough data and experience to fully underwrite cyber effectively, but we've made a lot of progress. Mm -hmm. We just had an interesting meeting with some UK representatives that include uh, uh, business reps from the, the the insurance community. Some of our broker members were a part of the delegation. Uh, the had the critical infrastructure community and the cybersecurity community. And the group was led by the UK government's uh, International Trade Administration, ITA, I think. But they were encouraging uh, stakeholders and policy leaders in the United States to have a more holistic approach to ESG issues, and they were saying you cannot, all under the guise of building building back better or being resilient and mm -hmm. encouraging more resiliency, but they were saying you cannot look at any three of these sectors separately. You need to look at them all collectively, infrastructure, insurance, and cybersecurity. And I thought it was a really interesting point. Uh, real quick, we, last, we ask all of our attendees or participants in sure. this podcast the two same questions. One, what is the number one issue that you're hearing about from your, hearing from your constituents on right now? In Massachusetts, the cost of housing is impairing our ability to do anything as an economy. Uh, it's coming from young families looking to get a start. It's coming from senior citizens looking to retire with dignity. Uh, the cost of housing is asphyxiating our society and economy in the Bay State. But I also hear um, a real desire for continued bold climate action, continuing what we did last Congress. And then finally, and this is what keeps me up at night, is, is gun violence and just the obscene obscene scourge of continued massacres in our schools, our grocery stores, our churches. Um, it's preventable. This is not some natural disaster. This is man-made, and it's being led by the gun manufacturers who are marketing to, to young people, young men in particular, with a really distorted vision of what it means to be an American, a man, a gun owner. It's all just completely uh, appalling. It wasn't lost on me today walking around Capitol Hill seeing the flags at half-mast and I was thinking usually that's for dying in service or yeah. these, this is over people just going to school. It's pretty crazy. It is, and they could be permanently there because we have it, we've had one mass shooting a day this entire year. I mean, we could just, we could just glue them there because mm -hmm. this country uh, is continuing to, to wither under the assault. Uh, second question, who's your favorite member of Congress on the other side of the aisle to work with? It was Liz Cheney, last Congress, incredible moral courage. This is the head of her conference. This was the top sort of partisan Republican, I guess is a way to say it, in the whole House of Representatives, who stood up to her entire conference and said no more with Donald Trump. He is uh, operating in a way that threatens our core institutions and democratic norms, took an absolute hail of abuse, and never blinked. Uh, she and I worked together on Ukraine in particular, and championing bipartisan support for the strategic defeat of Russia and Ukraine after its unjust, unprovoked invasion. And I just admire somebody who has the courage of her convictions, and she did. She was really impressive. Indeed. Congressman, thank you for joining us. Look Good forward to, to working with you. with you in the future. Take care. That was Representative Jake Oshinkoff, along with Council Government Affairs team Joel Copperud and Blair Bartlett. Tune in for more Capitol Hill Chatter at leadersedge.com or find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud.